Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have found a distinct perspective on time. Spencer, this week you had the Cuban-American artist Teresita Fernandez in the studio. Fascinating interview. Tell us about it. Yeah, so we talked a lot about the American landscape, not just as a literal idea, like the Hudson River school painters, but also something as, as metaphorical. And her work has long been an exploration of this idea. Underlying her work, which is indeed beautiful, is this notion or idea of violence, uh, violence within the, the landscape. We talk a lot about that. Um, it was really exciting. I've always wanted to have an interview with Teresita, so it's great to finally sit down with her. Fantastic. This is Spencer and Teresita in conversation. Welcome, Teresita. So happy to have you here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So on this episode of Time Sensitive, I wanted to begin with the subject of Japan. Um, The reason being that, well, obviously on the surface, you're a Cuban-American woman who grew up in Miami. I don't think most people associate Japan with you. However, it has been a huge part of your life, your career, um, since you first had an Artist Fellowship residency there in in 1998. What is it about Japan that drew you in, and and how has Japan become a part of your life and your work? Oh God, that's such a loaded and interesting first question because I can answer almost anything about myself in relation to it, um, but it's also a complex answer. So I would start in an unexpected place, which was. When I was a kid, I, 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 and the short answer is that they're both island nations. They have very sort of Miami and Japan. Uh, or, no, Cuba and Japan. Oh, Cuba. And because Japan. I yeah. think, as as a child of of exiles, you know, you're never really from the place you're born, and you're always from the place your parents came from. And I really think of myself as Cuban, even though I am Cuban American. There's a kind of displacement, but there's also even in even growing up in Miami, a sense of an archipelago-like existence. And even Miami, when I was growing up, did have a very sort of island-like quality to it. So, you know, your your psychic sense of the place is like very much tied to island culture, to the idea that you're surrounded by borders, to the idea that you're sort of um, displaced or unique in, in this sort of self-contained universe. So that's the short answer. But I would start by first answering saying that when I was a kid... Um, in that way that when you're a child, you don't, you don't really know how the, the experiences that you have will feed into your life as an adult or your interest. Um, and of course, all children have that capacity to, to be artists and to see the world like artists. But I did things like I would, I would dig holes um, in Miami, you know, where, you know, you hit water at like five, ten inches down. Um, and I also had a pet chicken. <laughs> and this pet chicken 
my favorite thing to do in the world was to watch the chicken lay an egg. And when the chicken would lay an egg, it was amazing because it was this thing, this orb, this sculpture that would come out really soft. And then it would get hard before it hit the ground, you know, which is like a kind of incredible thing, right? So there was this very sort of sculptural material thing that I was fascinated with. And I always looked at it as a slow sculpture. And this idea of a slow sculpture totally fascinated me. A bonsai is also like a slow sculpture, you know? It's this thing that's changing at this radically slow time that, that's imperceptible and that's hard to measure, but that is clearly affecting your perception. And so when I first uh, lived in Japan in my 20s, um, I lived there for almost a year, and I really learned to see and um, to understand the world visually by living not just around Japanese things, but especially in Kyoto, really sort of being immersed in Japanese culture. Um, and in many ways, I think of, there are lots of parallels actually between uh, the sort of universal kind of global context of a place like Cuba and the universal sort of global context of a place like Japan, um, even though they're islands in that very Derek Walker understanding of St. Lucia being this tiny little island that contained the whole universe. Both of those places as island nations had this very rich, extensive ideas of universality, um, their experience as this hugeness and this wholeness. And I could speak more about how visually being in Japan affected me. Right. What was your response to the the aesthetics of Japan, of the way buildings were done, of design, of of things like um, light and shadow? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You you have to slow down to understand anything um, that's special in Japan, and that's part of the process. I I think in my work that's what I was. That's what I was learning how to do. I was learning to understand that I wouldn't get everybody and that I I was interested and that I am interested in intimacy and mm-hmm. in getting those fewer people that can be completely transformed by the quietness of an image or by the beauty of an image. You know, beauty is another strategy that I use. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in Japan, there are things like you will be, you know, the traditional Japanese interior is very dark, for example, which means that anything in it that catches the light, like a tiny object that's gold lacquer or a tiny fleck of reflection becomes immense, you know? And this this sort of relationship between the intimate and the immense is something that I'm interested in. It's, it's not unlike that island and that universe that I'm talking about, that micro and that macro, that, you know, acorn and that forest, which then we can also begin to translate into the individual in society. You know, there's lots of sort of parallels between things that are very, very small and very, very big. And so those proportions are very, very ritualized, but also very respected in in everyday Japanese aesthetics and and culture, really, like everyday living sort of is like a built-in thing from what something looks like on your plate to, you know, how you arrange a flower, you know, a group of flowers to to not turning on the, the lights because it's so much more beautiful to have whatever lights available. So things like that. Mm. Um, but I learned how to make certain things visually important by making other lots of other things not visually important. Mm. And, you know, that, that sense of 
visual scale, you know, which isn't about physical scale, but it's about how something creates a big, big presence, sometimes by not being loud or being physically big. Mm. You mentioned bonsai trees, but I'm also curious about your take on Japanese gardening. You, you've mentioned a technique called shikei previously. Could you tell the listeners what shikei is and how does that relate to your work, to your, to your practice? So shakei, at the time, I was actually doing lots of research into 17th century gardens in Europe as well, but also um, in Japan. What I was interested in, in this idea of, you know, the, sort of the metaphysics of the garden is how you really understand the garden by moving through it. And most people don't think of my work as figurative, but I think my work is completely figurative. There's just no figures. <laughs> there are no figures in the work. You're, you're the figure. The work is totally figure. So the garden is about... Now, the garden has, in all cultures, has always been a metaphor for the universe, once again. You know, it's a tiny enclosed, you know, every reference to the, to the, to the garden from Eden, paradise, you know, in every, across religions, across civilizations, is always a, a map, in a way, a microcosm of the universe. And in Japan, it's no different. So shakei is, it's a bad English translation, really, of a traditional technique used in in Japanese gardens. It sounds like it means borrowed landscape, Mm. but the real, in the the bad translation, but in the more accurate translation, it means to capture alive. And what happens is in this sort of darkened Japanese interior, usually there's this real connection between the inside and the outside. There's sometimes nothing dividing the inside and the outside. So there may be a shoji screen that's like open half the time or just not there. Shake is really a kind of a way of composing real space to create an illusion. So if you're inside the, the, the Japanese temple home and you're looking out, shakei would be where some bushes in the foreground, maybe a, a, a fence or a, or a border 12 feet away and Mount Fuji in the background are all composed into an, a, a kind of composition that fits into a rectangle of where that shoji screen is missing. And it almost appears like a living diorama, uh, in part because there's no light where you're standing. And then the natural outdoor light almost creates this artificial illuminated (laughs) glow, which is, of course, just the natural landscape. So there's no real trick. It's really just things in real space, unlike, say, linear perspective, which is a drawing. Um, It's almost like if you could imagine like a one-point linear perspective in real space done with real things like a real mountain and a a real Mm. bush in the foreground. Um, And so it looks very compressed, this idea of foreground, middle ground, background, and it creates a kind of view. And it looks like it's captured alive because, of course, it is alive. So there's a kind of shimmering to it. Mm. There's a kind of aliveness to it that's really important. Mm. Nature, of course, is a huge part of the culture in Japan and and a, plays a, a large role in your body of work. How have you explored nature through Japan, through your time there? Have have you had experiences in nature there or, or at a particular place or site that have changed your view on how we interpret nature, how we experience nature? Yeah, I mean, the... If if you spend 
like if you spend any time in Asia, you realize that the, the sort of relationship to nature is completely the opposite of our sort of more Western approach. Even if you think of sort of the outdoors and hiking in a Western context, like in an American context, I should say, rather, because it certainly isn't that way in an indigenous American context, but in a, in a Western sort mm-hmm. of United States, you know, context, the idea of, of being in nature is always really about controlling nature. It's about sort of commanding this vista or conquering something. In, in Asia, and you can see this in ancient Chinese landscapes, um, landscape paintings and poems, uh, as well as Japanese ones, Korean ones. The idea is that you're very, very, very small in relation to nature. And, you know, smallness can be a kind of quietness. It can be a kind of slowness, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Because it requires, there's a kind of humility built into it. What I learned is that, and what I continue to learn I learned this too sometimes in in different indigenous contexts through the Americas. Um, For example, in South America, I've experienced this. The relationship to nature is is very different. And what it implies when you realize this is that you are connected to these universal rhythms, quite literally, right? Like the the ways our bodies work are very much timed to these natural and cosmic events. And yet we're so unaware of it because we think we somehow produce it when we stand in front of it. So that that's one way I think that mm. there's a very big difference. Right. Connected to this, of course, is this idea of the landscape and, and cultural interpretations of landscape. And that seems to be something that's a large through line in your work is thinking about this notion or definition of landscape. What is landscape? Could you talk about that from your own perspective? How do you view the word landscape and why has landscape become something that's so important for you to explore? Well, I think landscape's just a word and it's a word that I use in the art context um, almost as a foil because it's a word that's understood to believe something very finite, right? Mm. It's really based on like the history of landscape painting for the most part. Like nobody ever thinks of, for example, of a landscape sculpture or the history of landscape sculpture, unless they're talking about land art, which is different, of course. And that's problematic even of itself, right? Uh, That's like, don't even get me started on that one. But um, our notions of landscape really stem from very, very controlled fabricated legacies of uh, Hudson School painting, you know, Frederick Church, Thomas Cole, like things that really were kind of fabricated as being what represented, quote, an American landscape. And and it was very strategic how that was done. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like anybody thought of the American landscape that way before. At the same time, it erases like a whole other (laughs) existing landscape, right? For millennia, there were all kinds of things happening um, here. But my understanding, my use of the word landscape really is connected to that foil because nobody, like people really think of the word landscape as being very passive. And they think of landscape itself as being very passive. So that works for me because it means I can layer anything I want into it. And I could be speaking of very difficult things and very sort of complicated, violent histories and call it landscape. And I can get people to 
participate in the sort of taking apart of the artwork, feeling completely unthreatened by the word landscape. Of course, what landscape really is, is, you know, every, every example of injustice and violence in this country and in every other country, in any part of the world, in any historical period, is about land. It's about ownership. So landscape is the history of power, you know, since day one of humans, basically. It's about conquest. It's about power. It's about ownership. Um, and it's about, it's about what things get named. It's about who controls what. And it really, it really boils down to the landscape. It boils down to the land. We somehow think of land as being different than landscape. You know, landscape is pretty and land is about rights somehow. But if you fuse both of those things and you start to understand the landscape as the place that is both incredibly, shockingly beautiful, and, and like devastatingly beautiful all the time and also delicate and mm. just um, riddled with violence. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to me how that word has become mediated too. Thinking about how casually we refer to things like the media landscape or the art landscape. How do you feel about that kind of usage of the word? I mean, it's metaphorically speaking, I suppose, but it it doesn't really capture the definition or the idea that you're talking about. It kind of actually makes it, to me anyway, feel somehow muted or or basic. I, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, the the landscape is also, um, and these th this is how you know the the, the perception of power is also controlled. But landscape is also, you know, Standing Rock, the largest Native American protest in history. And it's also the polluted water in Flint, Michigan, literally flowing through. Um, and it's also a mass grave at the border. You know, that's the landscape. Mm. Uh, the landscape is not just what you take on your family vacation when you go to, you know, the Southwest. And I think that we've we've become... I mean, a lot of it is sort of steeped in American exceptionalism, too. I, I don't think in other parts of the world people um, are forced to have a different relationship with the land and with the landscape because they are threatened by it, because it's dangerous, because the landscape is also um, dying, <laughs> but also because the violence is harder to hide. I think in the United States, you know, we we have this very sterilized notion of those things so that we can separate this enjoyable, pleasurable idea of landscape into one box and conveniently sort of omit, uh, for example, what's happening at the border right. as having anything to do with land or landscape, you know, like you somehow just take. And so me that for me, that's very revealing is for me, real landscape is ultimately connected to people and the history of people. Mm -hmm. And if you're creating a view that is so sanitized that the people are not in there, you know, um, then there's a problem. Yeah, it's it's not a Bob Ross painting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I I think this idea of um, how humans impact the land and how the land in turn impacts humans isn't thought about enough. And in fact, oftentimes, you know, as, as you've sort of explained, when we think about landscape or land in in sort of this grand 
Western context, we kind of don't think about the negative implications of how we're treating the land and how that negativity is coming back at us. And Flint, Michigan, I guess, would be a, a good example of that, of neglect and mistreatment of land and then in turn mistreatment of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I want to use this opportunity to kind of go back to the beginning of your life and and hear a little bit about what it was like growing up the the daughter of Cuban immigrants in Miami. Tell me a little bit about your parents and and their impact on you, what it was like being raised by them. Um, so, well, my parents left right after the Cuban Revolution in 1959. Um, they left everything they had. So did my grandparents and some parts of my family, not all. Many of my aunts and uncles and cousins stayed there. Some of them were for the revolution. Some of them were not. Some of them just had their everything taken from them from one day to the next. They lost their businesses, their homes, everything. People just came in and took it. So my parents left in 1959, and they and my grandparents and other people in my family, many other Cuban exiles as well, arrived in a Miami that was basically a Jim Crow South, which looked nothing like like Havana. Basically, it looked nothing like Havana. They didn't speak the language. They did not have an education. Um, my mother was in high school when she arrived, and she never finished, basically. My my father also does not have a college education. You know, my parents were not educated, but my, my father was a voracious reader. We had this immense library in our home, and we had an unheard of five encyclopedias, which he had acquired volume by volume, often in grocery store promotions. And so we had uh, a Britannica in English, a Britannica in Spanish, a New World Book of Knowledge, an encyclopedia of U.S. presidents, and uh, a children's encyclopedia um, called Childcraft, of which volume 11 was called Make and Do. And pretty much everything I learned how to ever do and everything maybe that I ever needed to learn came from that volume. Miami was a place full of struggling communities that all sort of revolved around this this Jim Crow South, basically, which was about um, white supremacy really controlling everything. And then all of these different struggling groups, not all the same. So there were African-Americans who were completely disenfranchised, always like literally cut off in neighborhoods that they were lived in. There were there are points in Miami where there's not even like municipal water getting to these neighborhoods. There were and still are, but I'm speaking about that time. There were there was a big Haitian community. There's a big Cuban community. There were lots of black, brown, multiple race Cubans, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans. When they arrived, you know, Afro-Latinos, so Black Cubans were segregated at the time. So they were sent to Detroit or Chicago. And Cubans who were lighter skinned were exiled in Miami. There was a lot of tension between differing racial and ethnic communities because everybody was struggling for the same menial jobs. It was set up for them to be sort of vying for, for the same, you know, low low-wage jobs. Mm. Um, and so it was very confusing. You know, I was called a spake all through high school and, and before that. They were, you know, they were treated better than uh, than 
African-Americans were treated because they were lighter complexion, the Cubans in general. They weren't treated as badly as African-Americans were treated, but they were still treated like dogs, which says a lot about the extreme anti-Black sentiment in that Jim Crow South. I remember my my mom recalling when, when they arrived to, to Miami as, as Cuban refugees that people would have signs outside their apartments saying vacancy, uh, no pets, no children, no Cubans. But there were other signs too that said no dogs, no Negroes, no Cubans. And so while they were treated better because they had, they were afforded the, the privilege of um, being lighter complexioned, they were nevertheless treated in a very undignified way. When my parents arrived, they could not find uh, a place to live. It was a very sort of loaded, yeah. you know, period in the in the nineteen, you know, sixties. This is during a lot of civic unrest all throughout the country, um, and so Cubans just sort of arrived, and they were completely disoriented because the truth is that race in the United States and and the violence with which that white and black extreme is interpreted and understood is unlike anywhere else in the entire universe. It's really like unware, nowhere else in the world. Mm. And it was foreign to them as mm. well as to a lot of other people. So growing up in that was weird. Yeah. yeah. And yet sort of in, in the midst of this um, unrest and your dad, your parents somehow landed on their feet, your, your father as a um, yacht builder, I understand. And as it was defined at the time, this idea of the American dream, he he actually was able to kind of grow into that and and live that idea. Um, yeah, I mean, he was you know he worked for thirty years in a factory. Um, all of the people in my family worked in a factory, men and women, um, laying fiberglass. So it sounds more glamorous when you say he was a yacht builder, <laughs> but he worked in a factory, and then he he he. He, after many decades, opened up his own business where he used those skills. But he worked very hard. All I remember is my parents working in factories, um, doing physical labor. You know, and so, yes, I guess he did well for himself, but he certainly struggled. It, it was not like an easy... Mm. All I remember was people of that generation just worked to the bone. Like right. they really were so focused on giving their children the opportunity to go to college, et cetera, um, and to just make a, a, a life for themselves. Yeah. And, and did that work ethic sort of come down to you? In, in absolutely. A, I mean, absolutely. There is, I definitely am, you know, a product of that, you know, that immigrant experience where you feel a whole lot of responsibility to not take for granted the, the, the privileges that were afforded to you because, you watched your how hard your parents worked, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I do think that that's unique. I think it's something that, for example, that my own children, you know, uh, and that is why like the lessons are hard to pass on, right? So the thing that I know so well, and I, you know, I'll tell my own children, oh, you have no idea, and it's like the truth is they don't because I've already benefited from the the things that my parents were able to help me with, for example. Um, so yeah, each generation sort of has its own thing to learn, mm. but I'm definitely like very much a product of, you know, I'm a first generation American and, um, with all of the sort of liminal displaced, uh, stuff that, that comes along with that. Um, yeah. 
I want to talk about making an art because I understand also, you know, as a child, you're, you had a great aunt who worked at a dressmaking workshop. Through that, you were able to kind of get access to these scrap materials and make things. Yeah. Oh, she didn't work in a dress shop. Oh. So these ladies, like my grandmother and all my great aunts, in lieu of going to high school in Cuba, they all went, they all signed up for this this woman who had a kind of school in her in, in her own home. It was a very sort of upscale thing. Um, and they managed to get into this school, which was a, a couture school. So they were like expert seamstresses. And I don't know how they got in or how they learned because it was really like a friend of somebody who helped them and let them in. But they had all these skills and they were really like exquisite uh, makers of things. When they got to the United States, people like them who could really not just sew, but who were like couture seamstresses, they were working in factories, just like piecing together stuff like mindless factory work, the way so many immigrants in this um, country do. And they kind of decided at some point, this group of sisters, basically, um, four sisters, they were like, you know what, let's just buy some machines. And so they somehow, I don't know how, slowly saved and bought these crazy industrial machines um, and set it up in the back room of one of their houses. And this is where I grew up. Right, So they taught the kids, me, my cousin, we knew how to use these industrial machines, which probably wasn't a smart idea because we could like <laughs> lost a finger on them. But um, we were quite adept at using them. Uh, we were careful. And then they had our rolls and rolls and fibers. So they basically set up their own business, which they had no tools to do. Like they didn't even speak English, but they somehow figured this thing out. There was a there was a demand for something they could. They had a skill. They had a tool. They figured it out. They're like, there's in Spanish, there's a, in Cuban Spanish, there's an expression called resolver, which is actually a very African idea, which is like, you make do, you figure it out, you survive. And, you know, it's this, it's this very Cuban Spanish idea and word. It's this sense of like, you have a stick, you make the stick do something that a stick doesn't do. And, you know, the classic example is like my great uncle in Cuba, who was this expert mechanic and could fix anything, all of these old cars. And he would basically craft replacement car parts out of things that were not car parts. It was basically just stuff. Um, but the idea of to resolver um, is, a, is a more expansive concept than just the idea of a physical solution or a material solution. It actually has much more to do with a kind of uh, very sophisticated ingenuity and self-sufficiency and a kind of ultimately mode of creativity that I think people of color and immigrants are experts at by nature. Anyway, so I grew up in this environment where I basically had access to all the scraps. One of my aunts smoked as she worked. This is in Miami in like 100 degrees we degree weather. So often the, sca the scraps had ashes all over them because I'd be pulling out of the bin. So I just remember making things and that the, sometimes everything smelled like cigarettes <laughs> on my art. But I knew how to use these machines too so I could make things out of fabric. And it's, it was kind of a magical thing as a kid. They had these huge cutting tables that were like 20 feet long. And underneath them was like my private studio. You know, it was like a little room down there. And nobody bothered me and I could build things. I was making installations. I didn't know that's what they were. 
but um, it was it's a really magical way to grow up. Mm. And and how did it evolve from there? I know you loved drawing as a child, and sophomore year in college, uh, you took a sculpture course. Yeah, I went into college as a psychology major because I still had that sort of stigma that you better get a job that you know you can be a real professional at. As as a girl, I think I had less pressure than my brothers did because, you know, they figure you'll marry off or something. Um, and they, they were very conservative that way. They were also Latin American. So they had like these very sort of conservative views. So they they kind of didn't. I was the third of four children. They kind of didn't care that much that I wanted to do that as long as I was sort of out of trouble. Um, but when I when I took college, I knew right away that I was not interested in psychology. Or, or that maybe I was, but not a, not in that traditional sort of psychology department um, training. Um, and then I took a sculpture class. And the thing that just opened up the world for me is that I learned how to weld and, and how to forge metal. So I was this very petite woman in a sculpture studio, often full of men. This is like the sculpture studios are always full of like the big boys, you know, <laughs> um, and I was taking these huge pieces of metal, making them molten hot, like hitting them, you know, like all of my sort of anything that I ever had pent up inside of me found like an outlet, basically. And the ability to take a natural and to understand how a natural material gets transformed and turns into something else. Um, it's interesting because the, the title of my mid-career show is Elemental. And it really goes to that. It goes to like the sort of material intelligence of the element, you know, mm. that basic piece of metal that really doesn't want to do anything else except be a piece of metal and how, you know, imposing onto it and changing it and transforming it is just like this incredible feeling to to be able to have agency over that and to, and to give it meaning. You yeah. know? I think we tell the listeners that you have a, or should tell them now that you have a mid-career retrospective this fall at the Perez Art Museum in Miami. That's right. It's being co-curated by uh, the Perez Art Museum and Phoenix Art Museum. So mm. it travels to both, and then it goes to the New Orleans Museum of Art after. Mm. So we'll get we'll get to the retrospective in a little bit after your your studies at the University of Miami. Um, three years later, you you went to the MFA program at Richmond's Virginia Commonwealth University. What was that program like? Um, did you did you kind of see yourself on an MFA track, or did that come about more? No, no. I wanted I wanted to get my MFA. I was very interested in it. I had never lived anywhere but Miami. You know, it was a great program. I had some really good instructors. Um, it was really weird to live in Richmond mm. and to live in like the capital of the South. And I, in many ways, felt like my parents must have when they first arrived to Miami. Because if you don't fit neatly into a category of black or white in that town, people do not know what to do with you. And I I was literally scared sometimes. I was seeing things that were very sort of new for me. Like um, on Friday nights, I had a studio on Broad Street, which was it's no longer there, but it was a very old building. You know, the whole building was like a fire trap. It was very charming and a perfect studio for uh, uh, a young art student. Um <laughs> But if I looked out of my window on a Friday night, like the scene was all of the high schoolers packed up into the back of a, 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 a pickup truck going around town with a Confederate flag, you know, drinking beer. And 
it's like it doesn't go away. Like we think all of the sort of like climate that we're in is new and it's it's not new. It's always been there. It's just that people are shocked when they have to see it. Yeah. <laughs> They're inconvenienced when they have to see it. But um, yeah, so I'm sure, you know, Charlottesville was no surprise to you. No, I mean, it's never gone away. It's always been there. But uh, Richmond was a very strange place, too, because it was very um, and I think actually Richmond has changed a lot since then when I was in school in the early 90s. I think now it's it's much more of a progressive place and that it's more blue. But even those descriptions, like, I don't I don't really know. <laughs> I think that a lot of this is still there. Um, you know, it's hard to be like the 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 kind of authority and, and legacy of like Monument Avenue and just all these Confederate um, generals. It's like it's everywhere in that town. And I wasn't really noticing any of these things when I went there. I just went because it was a great program and it was a great program for me. But socially it was and and just the environment was a very loaded place and and a place that unsurprisingly um, was very reluctant to to change or to mm. give anything up. Yeah. Mm. So after this, you, you returned to Miami. And at that stage, did you know that art was your, your path? You were going to be an artist. That was going to be how you, you made your life. Oh, I, I knew way before that. I knew <laughs> the minute I took that piece of metal and like made it red hot and like changed the shape of it, that's when I knew. Okay. So yeah, I definitely knew by then. Shortly after that, you, you did get a, a show at, at a now defunct museum, the Cuban Museum. Yeah. T- tell me about that show. Well, that was a group show. And then, you know, I mean, it was it's not the most important show I did. Mm. It might be interesting because it says Cuban in the title. But <laughs> um, yeah, I did a lot of other group shows in town, too. There were no real museums in Miami at the time, I think is the important thing to know. Mm. Pam was called Mam at that time. And it was, yeah, like it really wasn't the Miami that people know now. It was a very sleepy town culturally. Like when I grew up there. There really were no museums and there was no contemporary art scene. So the place where I was kind of nourishing myself wasn't wasn't museums in Miami or cultural activities. It was really the way Miami looks, which is this very, very special place. You know, the light in Miami is very special. Um, the color. The idea that you're just surrounded by water is a very particular kind of island experience and yeah it creates colors that are just completely unbelievable i wasn't so i I wasn't really participating in any kind of like contemporary art context there yeah i mean in a way i've always looked at your work sort of as that of an outsider you're not somebody who's trying to be a part of uh you're you're really trying to create something that's distinctly your own, that's your own voice. It's not part of a collective feeling or platform, let's say. Yeah, well, it's funny you say that because I've not been in a lot of group shows, and I agree. I think that there's a kind of outlier thing that I'm doing. I don't know why I'm not trying to do an outlier (laughs) thing. I'm just trying to be me. But I, yeah, I also think what I'm doing is very... um, in the landscape and sculpture, actually, sculpture is very much like the orphan of the art world, you know, so it doesn't have like the kind of glamour and grandness of architecture and it doesn't have the sort of 
the romanticism that people love about like the painter, you know, um, sculptures inconvenient. It's it takes up space. It's heavy. It's hard to make it do something. In my case, what I'm trying to do is make sculptures that behave and feel like films or drawings, you know, so that's hard to do, you know, to make something look ephemeral and to be using real materials to do it. And there's, it's not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not interested in like optics and science and perception. Like that's not my thing either. I'm not in design, you know, I'm just sort of in this in-between thing that's sort of like, it's sort of like painting and film and architecture and land art and sculpture Mm. and I don't know, and like anthropology, like (laughs) all together, but it's really none of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I can't help but think about Isamu Noguchi in this context because Mm. he's a, he was a Japanese American. So bicultural uh, artist, sculptor, designer, um, somebody who didn't really believe in defining art or design as the specific thing. And someone who of course was heavily influenced from Japan, but also had a distinctly American uh, Mm -hmm. perspective. That's right. Yeah, I think that's a really good analogy, actually. Mm. So in 1995, you had your first kind of big solo show that that Bonnie Clearwater helped present, I think, right? Yeah, that that actually wasn't a a solo show. It was a two-person show Mm. um, while I was living in Miami after graduate school. And my first real museum solo show was at the ICA in Philadelphia, and it was per- curated by Patrick Murphy uh, a few years later. And yeah. Mm. And what was the sort of evolution for you? Was there was there a breakout moment you felt in your own work in the 90s that sort of defined the trajectory of where you've gone now? I understand, I, you know, you had a your first show in New York was with Deitch Projects. Now it's a, a large scale sculpture. That's right. Yeah. So I think I was living in Miami for about four or five years after graduate school, but really I was I was living from I was teaching a little bit and I was living from grants. I was applying to everything, and so I was doing lots of grants. I was doing lots of work. Um, I did not want to move to New York and try to make art. I wanted to make a bunch of art, and I knew that I needed to live in a place where I could afford to do that. And that my time was the most valuable thing. And then I did about two years where I just did nothing but artist residencies. And I went to different places. So one of those was Japan. I went to Rome, I uh, the American Academy. I did a an art place residency in Texas. And then the last one was a Marie Walsh Sharp space program here in New York. And I just never left. Uh, that was 1997. So I've been here for over 20 years. Wow. Have you been in the same studio space since then? or I've been in the same studio space uh, since 1998. So almost that whole time. Wow. Yeah. In terms of process, I kind of want to get into your head about how you approach your work. Because one of the things that strikes me when I'm with one of your pieces, it does cause, as a viewer, it causes you to slow down. It causes you to really kind of turn inward and, and position yourself in, in the context of the work to understand almost like what's my place in this. Mm-hmm. I imagine that from a process point of view and even just an ideation point of view, you're really 
having kind of a similar slowing down, a similar kind of, I guess, what's your process? <laughs> well, I mean, there's, I think there's two parts of the process. I, I would, I would start by saying I'm really private and really like secretive and very superstitious when I'm in my own like creative space. I don't post pictures of it. I don't like share it with anybody. It's it's a really kind of sacred space for me. But the bulk of my process is really research and it's conceptual and it's it's really writing and reading and thinking about why I want to make something. So once I understand that, I start working with materials. And to me, materials are very, very specific because they, they are conceptual. So it's not about how do I take this idea and execute it the easiest way. It's really about what material is the perfect material for making this statement. So for example, my use of gold, which is I mean, the last few years, I've done a bunch of pieces, series of with some gold in it. It's always a reference to uh, colonialism. It's always a reference to the Americas. It's always a reference to, you know, the South American landscape, the Latin American landscape. And it's always sort of buried. Lately, I've been using a lot of charcoal. And again, the charcoal is very, very specific. Um, it has to do with indigenous slash and burn techniques. So for millennia before any European contact, all throughout the Americas, indigenous people were manipulating the land and the landscape and the soil in highly sophisticated ways um, that allowed the soil to be fertile and sustainable. That is completely like not given credit, basically. So everything we've done has messed it up. But um, charcoal was a really important part of that. And this idea that like materials are also parts of places. So when I use charcoal, the charcoal is really a tree that burned. It is a landscape. When I use, uh, when I do these glazed ceramic pieces, they're made out of clay that's extracted from a particular place. The glazes on them are minerals that are extracted. They're all handmade. They're all, you know, like it's all very hand done and very carefully selected. It is, there's, so it's almost two phases for me. There's like the conceptual phase, which is very sort of interior. And then there's the material part of that. Mm. Um, and I do sort of, when I get to that part, bring in help from, you know, somebody who could help me with like a, a 3D program or, you know, like I, I don't want to work at that stuff. I don't want to work at like how to make a perfect miter joint. Like I want somebody to come in and give me this beautiful thing that's very specific that I can then work on, that kind of thing. Mm. In a talk you gave a couple of years ago, you mentioned that your process is sort of like mining. Could yeah. you elaborate on that? Well, I think I like that analogy also because so much of my work is about thinking of the landscape too as everything we don't think of as landscape, like the subterranean or the bottom of the ocean or the cosmos. Like those two are landscapes and they're, they're landscapes that influence us um, in ways that we may not want to be aware of or that we're sort of asleep to, but that are very sort of palpable. The mining uh, references is one that I like because it's also kind of poetic. It's connected to like this idea of seeing and not seeing and that it's more about uncovering, right? So mining also means that I don't know what I'm trying to say. This bothers me or this concerns me or this feels beautiful to me, but I don't understand why. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
um, the mining process is really one of extracting. So for me, it's like this very poetic analogy to to think about art making as 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 a kind of extraction. And in order to do that, and in order to ask viewers to do that, right, in order to come up with a piece that actually does these things, I have to do it for myself first. You know, I have to go pretty deep into myself as well. And I have to figure out who I am in relation to these materials and these things and these histories and everything that I'm trying to say. So it becomes very personal and it becomes very intimate in in that ma- process of making. You know, once it's out, it's out. You know, it's a thing that has its own life. But mm. the actual process of doing it really is like like a kind of self-mining as well. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think the fact that so much of your work is about these sort of natural wonders, these things that come out of the ground and, and you're turning them into something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not unconnected to this idea that you started with, with Japan and light and shadows, right? The shadow is also part of that, right? It's also about the part you don't see. Like the interesting thing about landscape is one that it looks back at you. Like I love that reciprocity. Like you're looking at it, but it's looking back at you. You might not realize it. Mm. And also the idea that the landscape is really much more about what you don't see than about what's in front of you. You know, like this landscape that we're on right now, where we're standing right now in Chelsea. It's like we can say this landscape is about the High Line and the new Hudson Yards and all that. But this is Lenape land, you know, like basically like we can't see that, but that's what it is. Um, And so this idea that we're actually and it's it's an idea that I refer to as stacked landscapes in my own terminology. But this idea that in any place, given place, we're actually in many places simultaneously and that excavating that existence is a is a is an act of self-reflection um it's something in fact that would serve us really well right now right to be able to look at truly look at okay who am i where am i and this this notion this sort of strategy of understanding who you are in relation to where you are Mm -hmm. and when every place around you is controlled named you know compartmentalized divvied up, you know, it's very hard to actually see where you are. So it's a, it's a pretty rigorous exercise. Mm-hmm. And then to understand, once you kind of have an idea of who am I, how, how did we get here? And, who, and then who am I in relation to other people? Yeah. Then what does that imply for me? I think it's important too in this moment that we're at where there's this very overzealous kind of attempt at dealing with, and I'm using quotations here, diversity, inclusion, like all these punch, social justice, like these become words that almost get misused because there's no meaning. There's no action attached to them, but there's no meaning attached to them either. And in them, everybody's very happy to speak about them as ideas that are abstract and outside of themselves. But very, very, very few people are willing to give anything up. And so the whole notion of participating in any social justice initiative for real first implies that you have to understand who you are and how you are that thing, you know, and then who you are in relation to other people. So it is sometimes about doing and sometimes it's about giving up. You know, and I find that that is, and I'm I'm sometimes involved in a lot of these conversations, but I find that it's extremely hard for people 
in in these conversations to imagine giving anything up as part of that equation. But it's a very simple idea that you can apply to anything from like panels at museum to land rights. You could apply it to anything. The idea is that if you really want something to be more equitable, then something has to change. Like something has, somebody has to give something up. If you have a table and there's 10 seats and you want to talk about justice and equality, then somebody's going to have to stand up and give the seat up so that you can ensure that balance. And it's very interesting to me that people do not have a, uh, any issue at all understanding this in terms of biodiversity mm-hmm. or even in terms of their own portfolios. But they have a really hard time understanding that that balance and that giving something up in order to write the, the, the equitableness of it, their own survival is implied in it, just like it is with your portfolio. That's why you diversify your portfolio, just mm. like as it is with that biodiversity. I think it's worth mentioning here that you were a special advisor on a committee to the president. Could you talk about that? position? Yeah, I wasn't a special advisor. I was a one of six commissioners mm. um, on the Commission of Fine Arts, which is an entity that's been around for over 100 years. Basically, we, we just advise, you know, the president and Congress on any new things that are going up. So, for example, the Museum of National, the National Museum of American uh, African American History, when that was going up, the Martin Luther King Memorial, anything on the National Mall, things like that, things that affect the landscape, the visual representation of anything um, in Washington D.C. And what what did having a seat at that table mean to you as a Latina woman, somebody who was able to contribute your point of view, your perspective on the sort of national stage? Yeah, my my per, my presence there was really. Well, first of all, I took I had a great sense of responsibility. So I, I took the job seriously. And more than anything, I was sort of the person speaking about some things from an artist's point of view, because most of the other um, commissioners were architects or landscape mm. architects. And so they always came to it from a design sort of point of view. And I'd always be like, what about this historical point or this idea or this nuance, or maybe that's not the best thing to visually represent that, or you can't change somebody's words, things like that, things that I think were often missed in the sort of nuts and bolts that had more to do with um, the conceptual. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, it was a learning process, and I was happy to do it and to be um, associated um, with the Obama administration, which I think really changed a lot of things and showed us how to imagine a government that could look like what the country looks like, very simple kind of thing. A couple of my fellow commissioners were also, you know, lovely people that I enjoyed working with. Mm. I want to return to shadows and this idea of shadows because a lot of your work has to do with these sort of complicated histories, mm-hmm. these conflicts and contradictions we we all face as Americans and our colonial past. Is a lot of your work about bringing these things out of the shadows? In other words, are shadows a metaphor in some ways for you as as well as a literal thing you're using in your work? I think so. I think the shadows are formal and visual, and I think they're also metaphoric. But so all of these things are important to me and they feed the whole process and the intention behind the work. Um, So I know that they're in there and I know that they're an important part of the work. But 
I am much more concerned with creating things that affect the viewer because they're very beautiful. Um, and I, I really depend on beauty as a strategy to to really seduce viewers and to kind of get them to care about something so that the work is not overtly didactic. Um, most of my research never comes to light. It's, that's why I said it's very sort of interior. But the work is political and the work is, you know, so it, I'm very interested in these like binary or in resisting these binary ways of understanding these things as though if it's political, it can't be poetic. If it's beautiful, it can't be rigorous. You know, it's like, those things are not true. In fact, you know, beauty is actually one of the most powerful strategies that we have to affect people. And so to me, the greatest tools are um, how can I like influence people's imaginations or capture the people's, imag people's imaginations? And how do I get them to care about something? How do I get them to stop and care about something so I could then influence them with everything else this is about? And I, I'm not interested in making slogans. I'm not interested in like being overt about these things. I don't think that's interesting. I could write an essay about that, but that's not what I'm trying to do in my work. For me, like the correlation between beauty and presence and intimacy are not opposite to being an activist or to being very verbal about how I feel about my life as a citizen. And you mentioned poetry. I know that that's also been a, a deep interest of yours. What importance to you has, has poetry had on, on your work? I mean, I, what I, what's interesting to me about poetry more than any one particular poem or poet um, is that there's this wonderful thing that happens in poetry that one, you have to be receptive to it. So there could be an amazing poem that falls on deaf ears. Like you cannot force somebody to feel something in a poem, right? And yet we all know that we have read poems where we are completely, like we feel like nobody else in the world understands us other than this poem. But it's always when we're receptive. And it's interesting that we go to poetry almost as a spiritual need when we are sad or low are, are at our lowest or and we need we need to nourish ourselves like i don't think people go to poetry for entertainment for example because it's very hard to read poetry in a superficial way so it requires the presence of the reader and 100 percent investment on the part of the viewer that's the kind of a reader sorry that's the kind of viewer that i want is a viewer that functions like a reader, where if you bring 100% and you're in a state where you're going to be receptive to this, it's going to be there because they put it in there and there's going to be lots to sort of explore and think about. But if if you're in a rush and you're, you want like some quick sort of pop art like moment, like it's just not going to happen. The work could just be not interesting at all if you can't slow down, mm. you know, and it's, it's okay. You know, it's okay. I think that there's lots of different sort of entry points and and levels, I think, of having access to a work of art. Um, there's always the most superficial one. And then you go from there. And the more you 
are willing to invest. But I do, I do believe in the art experience isn't just about the object or even about the intentions. I, I really see the, the closing of that circuit being what the viewer is willing to invest in that reciprocity. I'm asking the viewer to give something up as well. So it's hard to explain, but poetry somehow contains that same sort of strategy where there are all these words and they're not rational or linear and they're completely abstract, but they create this beautiful thing that you don't quite know how it got there. You know, it's this invention uh, in a way and this anomaly. And I feel like that's what I'm trying to do as well. Mm. I mean, it makes me think of some sort of public or semi-public works you've had in recent years, like like Fada Morgana at, uh, at Madison Square Park several years ago, or more recently, the, the installation at the Ford Foundation here in New York. What do you hope to do with those works, whether it was with those works or with the upcoming retrospective you have at PAM? How do you want viewers to kind of walk away from your work? Is there an, is there an emotion, a feeling is that question just too simple? <laughs> it's not. It's. I mean, it's. It's a really complex question. It's a really simple question too. So I. I always say that the reaction or the response that I'm most interested in in the viewer is intimacy, and that's that. That's not a qualifier. It has nothing to do with whether you like something or whether you dislike something. Both of those are totally valid. In fact, it has to do with whether you felt something or whether you somehow, and I, I'm very interested in that, like um, that sense of intimacy on the part of the viewer means that something happened here, you know, and that the work was a catalyst for something to sort of spark. And and sometimes it's slow, you know, sometimes it's slow. Like I've, I've, I've had people come up to me after lectures and realize what the work was about. Like I've had people come up to me like in tears, sort of understanding that the thing they were were looking at was not just a piece of metal, you know? And so there's this there's this moment. Yeah, it's a slow burn. I mean, and and literally in the case of the works you did exploring fire, for me, when I first saw them, I was kind of like, oh, it's a it's fire. <laughs> but the more I looked at the work, the deeper I felt about it and the larger sort of contextual picture I saw. I think I've gotten old enough or I've been around enough that people know to look at my work knowing that there's something else there and that they they need to like explore that a little longer or maybe read the label or something, but they know that um, my interests lie in really what happened here, like who was here, what, what like how does this say something about us, this idea of looking at place as a way of placing yourself. Um, so I think people know that now. Um, and if they don't, that's okay. Like, it's very interesting, too, with public artworks like Fata Morgana or the one that I just did at Harvard, which is called Autumn Nothing Personal. It's very interesting to see how people who know nothing about art are often so much more willing to be in that place of, like, that need for intimacy, is actually much healthier in them. And much, like they're very happy to feed that aspect of themselves. And, you know, the art world, we can be jaded sometimes. I don't know that that's how we're looking at art necessarily um, when we look at art. I think there's so many other sort of 
points of validation and qualifiers that we impose on some on whether something registers as good or or bad, you know, or like great or crap, you know, um, that we we sometimes miss the point. But in general, it's something that viewers absolutely know how to do on their own with no special instruction, with no labels, with no nothing. Teresita, this is great. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of the Time Sensitive podcast on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. 